Welcome to the Sober by Design podcast, where we explore the many pathways to recovery and a better life through conversations with a wide array of guests. Whether you're sober curious, in recovery, or simply looking to improve your mental health and well-being, this podcast will have something for you. Each week, we sit down with inspiring guests from all walks of life who share their personal stories of struggle and triumph, offering valuable insights and practical advice on how to design a life worth living. From addiction and mental health to spirituality and creativity, we cover a wide range of topics that are relevant to anyone seeking to live a more fulfilling and authentic life. So join us on this journey of discovery, growth, and transformation, and start designing a new life. Uh, All right, everybody. Welcome to the Sober by Design podcast. Today, I have a special guest. Um, I've known Pete for quite a while uh, via parasocial uh, relationship on Instagram. Um, so today we have Pete White, uh, better known to most of the people in the online recovery world as Pete on repeat. So for me, this is a big one and one that I've been waiting for for a while. So welcome, Pete. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm always uh, I'm always taken back by how people want me on their podcasts. There's a reason that I write. <laughs> it's because I don't speak very well at all, but... But thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, great. Good to uh, see your face. Good to see talk your... to you one on one. Yeah, after so many years, for sure. Yeah, we've known each other. I think online for probably close to, I'd say, six years, somewhere in that yeah ballpark. It's um, about that. Yeah, yeah, which seems crazy. I uh, yeah, for those people that are you know we are seeing face to face for the first time. Uh, well, talking face to face, and I can tell you that if you can't see us, you're not missing much <laughs> at all. <laughs> <laughs> Voice or faces made for radio is that <laughs> that's right yeah you got it <laughs> um so we normally start this off by just talking a little bit about your past and what led you to you know drinking um so if you can give us a little bit of an idea of who you were as a child where you grew up and then kind of what led to that that uh you're drinking that's all let's, sounds let's good start there. i uh I uh, grew up in Canada, uh, southern Canada, just across the river from Detroit. And uh, I, growing up, I wasn't actually exposed to a lot of alcohol in my home. Um, my dad would be the holiday drinker, uh, sometimes drunk driving home on Christmas Eve, that type of thing. But it wasn't a daily thing in my in my family in terms of substance use disorder. Um, I will flip back and forth those terms as well. It's hard to keep on that one all the time. So I'm a good old alcoholic and I mm-hmm. like to refer to myself that way. It just makes it easier and people understand it a little bit more. But um, I wasn't exposed to a lot of booze. Um, I was, however, exposed to substances. My dad um, was a chronic pot smoker. Um, many, many, many days, uh, day after day, I would, uh, I would, I was actually kind of experience a residual high oftentimes because you know being in the the next room i'd wake up high going to high school that type of thing so um dad was a pot smoker mom worked in the in a uh, pharmaceutical company so mom had access to um pills so mom had uh, a propensity for tranquilizers dad smoked pot all the time so (laughs) it's terrible i mean but it, it built a framework at that point that made me want to vehemently reject any sort of substance like pills or drugs or illicit sort of drugs. So um, I was actually in uh, in high school. I was uh, I was on a council for for to help other kids uh, to assuage them from not doing drugs and alcohol. But 
um, I remember just, you know, growing up, I, I felt like I had a reasonable childhood. The only time that the pot really interfered in my life was on those mornings that I'd wake up higher, um, which sounds very dramatic, but <laughs> it was, I mean, I mean, in retrospect, it was awful, but I mean, at the time, it didn't seem as though it was such a hindrance. Um, so there the, those sort of experiences it used to drive me crazy when my dad would get stoned and want to talk to me. So as a teenager, my dad was suddenly very funny and wanted to joke. And um, there's those in instances. And um, being in a border town, we often traveled across the river to Detroit. And um, I just remember the perpetual fear uh, because my dad just, he couldn't go anywhere would ha without having a joint with him somewhere. So I just every time we'd cross over the States to go to a baseball game, et cetera, I knew that we had pot in tow. So, but I mean, those are really the only things that I remember of great detriment. I was a fairly good student. Um, and um, I mean, I think I sort of developed those sort of anxieties as a teenager that most teenagers develop. And um, I remember the first time that I, um, was coerced into drinking alcohol. I mean, peer pressure, I guess. Um, I, obviously, nobody held a gun to my head, but I did it. And um, I remember thinking, like, this is this is beyond measure, this feeling that I'm experiencing right now. This is, I am not afraid anymore. I am not scared. I'm not, I don't care about what time it is. I don't care if I'm late for anything. I just remember being very swept away initially, almost immediately. And um, I was one of those people that had, uh, in the alcoholic world, I guess I was one of those people that had the fortune of not getting hung over okay. the first few times. So I didn't sort of experience the after effects. I just felt this tremendous relief, release ultimately, that I've never felt ever in my entire life. And I knew then that it was going to be a problem. So that um, that propelled me. And then, of course, I went to university. And then, you know, that's what you do in university. That's a socially accepted sort of um, behavior. And it just propelled and, and got worse and worse from there, obviously. Yeah. So you were in your teen years when you started high school? And yeah, even like I was of legal age in Canada, okay. in uh, Ontario. It was 19. So, okay. so I mean, you were I was of legal your first drink. Yeah, and yeah. I remember being so against it that I was 19 of age. I had the only one in the group because my birthday's early in the year that was able to go to the liquor store and buy it. And um, I remember having to get an older friend to do it just because I was so ashamed and it felt so awful and wrong to do. Okay. Well, you know, whip is... pan 20 years later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's interesting because I started, I started at 18, same kind of thing, same feeling. Um, almost this, that same idea of like, okay, there's no more fear. It just felt really good. And I kind of knew at that moment that I probably opened Pandora's box, right? Like, yeah, it was like, oh no, can I shut this? Like, oh, this, this is Jesus. This is what they talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was so yeah. against it too, leading up into that point, right? I was the last of my friends to drink and, um, but so against it because I grew up around it just like you. And it was like this sort of uh, opposite, totally opposite reaction. Okay, these are how my parents are. I'm going to be the opposite. And then somehow try it once and you turn into your, your folks into, in some form, right? So that mm -hmm. was interesting. So you went to university. You obviously partied through university. Coming out of university, what happens? 
Well, in in the time frame of university, I met my first wife. Okay. And um, uh, we are now several years into our divorce, and we finally sort of uh, come to uh, an area at which we have a great, great friendship. And it took a lot of work to get there, obviously, because things were messy. But um, a lot of my drinking was fueled by that relationship as well. Um, and nothing against her, obviously. Um, but she was also in the phase at which we would party, and we would party several nights a week. And um, and that that's that for me personally built the framework of our, our relationship. And that's what I mean at that immature age. That's what I felt the relationship was based upon. So as we grew up together and got older, she decided that she wanted to grow up, and I was and completely left in the dust. I was like, I don't, I don't think that you understand. <laughs> like this is this is who I am. Like this is this is what we built together. In my mindset, obviously, it was in a very you know alcoholic mindset where it was just me, 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 me. But um, it was, um, yeah, I just could not believe that one day it felt like one day. But you know, looking back in retrospect, it was it was prodding and poking for many, many years to sort of get my shit together. But it was, um, it just felt like I was completely betrayed in that. So um, I kept drinking, and we actually we had a son together, and um, and that didn't stop me. I kept going as well. Mm-hmm. And the issue that I had uh, in my early 20s, 30s was that I was um, I was a, a, a tremendous functional alcoholic, quote unquote, functional alcoholic. So, you know, I didn't miss work. Um, I uh, always made sure the house was clean when she got home and um, I picked up all the slack. So I had the excuse to continue to do what I was doing because for all intents and purposes, the machine was operating. So um, it was. Um, yeah, it was poking and prodding for years. And then um, ultimately, I mean, my ass was handed to me. I had my 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 moment when she left me um, at, at the age of 38, I was then. And uh, it was an, a Thursday a Thursday evening that will uh, live in my uh, memories forever. It was the worst, best day of my life. Um, I got home from work and she had her bags packed with my son. And um, that was the moment there. Uh, that was the moment where I seriously contemplated suicide i was at that time frame in my life i was morning drinking day drinking evening drinking tuesdays wednesdays thursdays every day was a holiday and um sneaking booze into the house um Mm -hmm. in my socks um in in mickey's uh small 13 ounce bottles and uh i uh i was i came very close to ending it all that evening and um that was my that was my come to Jesus moment, as it were. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, very, very, very instrumental, obviously, in my recovery because it was the day that I decided to. I I felt I had no choice other than either end my life or begin my life. Right. Unfortunately, some circumstances that evening uh, that she left sort of led me into the direction where I was um, so angry and so. Um, betrayed that uh, my anger ultimately anger is a tool and uh, it fueled me for a solid year and uh, the anger of her leaving and the um, just the primal feeling of well the fuck you was what propelled me for like I said a very a good year at the very least yeah it's interesting because I always say that like I've known you again on, online we've known each other i've watched your story i've i've seen who you are and there's so many similarities in our story right and so many little things that are similar and one 
is that idea that you were functional, you know, whatever that means, and that you were able to keep things going. You kept a job, you cleaned the house, you did all these things. And for me, that was always sort of an excuse to keep it going, right? Like I can do all this stuff. And like I was giving, to your point, giving myself permission, even though there was this voice in the background going, you got to stop, you got to change. This isn't working. There's something wrong, right? And it wasn't only my wife's voice, it was my voice. Like I'd wake up in the morning and I felt like garbage. And I would always say like, my, my thing would be, I'd go to my wife Renee and go like, there's something wrong with me. Like, I think I have a disease, right? And I'd go to the doctor and like, why can't you find anything? Meanwhile, like I had been up the night before polishing off a bottle of gin. Like, of course there's something wrong with my insides and I feel like they're going to come out, you know? But mm -hmm. like, for me, it was like, I could still do that, have that little half hour blip in the morning and then go to work and succeed, right? I, I managed to get an MBA throughout my drinking. Like there was a lot of things that I did that if you were on the outside, you're like, nothing's wrong with this picture. But meanwhile, in the house, every night, it was like a little bit, it felt a little bit unstable all the time, right? There was like this instability, this constant underline of instability. I'm sure you felt that too, but you could kind of push it aside, right? Like, oh, it's not me, right? Oh, yeah, for certain. And I mean, in my marriage as well, like, I mean, any... I mean, and the the mis the misunderstanding about people that are facing addiction is that we are so stupid. Like, w I was smoking at the time as well, so like smoking cigarettes and drinking, it's the epitome of like, why don't you get your shit together type of thing. But we know, like, I knew I was killing myself, mm. but I had come to the I've come to the conclusion that that was the best option. Mm. But I mean, ultimately, my marriage, my relationship, like, I knew, I was hurting my wife i i knew i was yeah but i was so entrenched in the feeling the only thing that made that feeling of hurting her and that shame and regret and everything go away was the very thing that was causing me you know to kill myself like it was just and you know it's just cyclical yeah. and the more you do it the more you have to do it and um yeah it's funny i think it's like you mentioned you had a you got your mba that's remarkable I um I managed a store that sold pencils. So, <laughs> but it, <laughs> I think you should applaud your accomplishment. <laughs> but it's just like a you know again if you're on the outside, yeah. Some people probably saw some cracks, but for the most part, people saw like someone like yourself or myself, like they got it fine. And mm -hmm. I think that that also kind of played into it, right? It just kind of was like, well, Pete's the fun guy that comes to a party and he has drinks, and you know that was th that kind of became the identity which also further bolstered how I felt and I'm sure bolstered how you felt to some extent. Right. So it was like Personally. this positive feedback that you're getting out in the world a little bit, which wasn't helpful um, and extended that past the time. I mean, you said you were 38, I was 35 when I got sober. I can't remember exactly, but similar timeline and similar experience. I mean, to be honest, I think I went to an AA meeting the morning that my wife was going to pack up the bags and take my two kids. Like, you know, like that was that it was coming, right? Right. Like I knew that morning, like, well, if I don't do something today, this party is going to end. And I, it was probably a 50, 50 shot if those bags were packed. Um, so y you obviously spent a year working on yourself uh, after that moment. And I, and I know that you've done a ton of work. What did that year look like? Was it just you by yourself or did you reach out or how did you go about that year? 
I was I was fortunate enough to have um, the wherewithal at work to have uh, options for counseling. So my initial sort of um, entrance into recovery was was through that one on one counseling. Um, I had uh, a very nice fellow that was able to sort of talk me through the initial motions. Um, I tried um, AA a few times uh, in that uh, a few first few months, and um, the experience that I had. And uh, obviously, don't get me wrong. I know it does a lot of good. I've read the big book. I appreciate the big book. I listen to it and read it still. Um, but my my experience, I was I was in such a pink cloud phase. Like there was once I once I learned to harness that anger and learn and learn how to fly with it. I felt so just so untouchable that when I would go to an AA meeting, a few that I went to. I um I felt that I I left feeling a lot worse than when I got there and it was once again I had not turned the page yet I was still in the initial phases of recovery I hadn't learned a lot I I was still in a very me 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 mindset but I would go to the meetings and say man these people are depressed <laughs> like what do I want to hang around these people for <laughs> but you know I mean at the same time I had the fortune of starting my instagram and have like this sudden like um group of people that were just like i don't know this guy he's bald he likes the color orange i love this guy so i had i just had this great community suddenly that was um was uh just behind me and to go and i and i mean the value that i i still get out of aa when i'm reading the documents or listening to podcasts is is the the commonality of us as people we are all the same person basically with different stories but um so i mean that commonality obviously is very important but in the initial first parts of my life um uh, in recovery i was so consumed by shame like for me the failure in the marriage was the most defeated i've ever been mm -hmm. and being able to obviously your marriage generally is a very public thing people know that you're married and suddenly when you're not together anymore people have questions right and the initial sort of um reaction to that was i can't i can't do this over and over again i can't have this friend ask me and that friend ask me i can't do it so that's why the instagram started i just needed to pop on social media it was the most brave thing i have ever done and i think the first place i did it was facebook and i just said hey everybody i'm not married anymore i'm a drunk let's move forward yeah and it was it was just a band-aid that i needed to pull off because i could not contend with the shame day after day after day after day so having that that forum and fortunately I think we live in a very different time now than it was eight years ago. Fortunately, I was not met by trolls. I wasn't met by anybody with anything negative. I just found a, a bunch of people that really wanted to support me and help me out. Yeah. Among them was yourself, obviously, but, but so many other people like us who understood. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I still feel like Instagram's like a little bit of a safe haven online, but I do see a little negativity coming around us uh, you know not a ton yeah but, i get it every now and then yeah yeah i just tell myself you've made it pete <laughs> <laughs> it, you know i think that you know one thing that you mentioned about aa is it is a very 
listen, A is strange because you can go in one room and have one vibe, another room and have a completely different vibe. I got sober in the rooms of AA and for me it worked. And for me, it was more the community, the accountability. And then at some point it didn't work anymore. I love the big book. I love the 12 steps. I think they are, you know, great ways to live. But then at some point I felt like I needed to control my recovery story. And it sounds like you wanted to control your recovery story earlier on. And that's how you found Instagram. And for you, I think it was spot on because your writing resonated with me like right away, I think. And and you built a following and you know all the people that we all, you know, it, it's a small group of us, I think. Not mm-hmm. a small group, but there's, there's a lot of people that are still around that, that joined right around that time of, what would you say, 2018-ish? It was 2018, yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's been interesting to watch that group grow. And most of those people have hung around. I mean, I was thinking about the other day, there's a couple that have kind of, fallen off but um i check in with a lot of those folks and you know you see some of them have written books now and some of them have uh really skyrocketed to to fame but i think it all came around for me um part of it was and and i don't know if you know but like the the home podcast got me Mm -hmm. right like laura and holly um they were very instrumental in my early recovery and um you know the book thing, I know that you've danced around it, but there's other things that I want to talk about. So at the same point, I found your Instagram, I found somebody else's Instagram, and she was writing about um, her life on the other side of, of alcoholism. Tell me a little bit about that story, if you can, because I think... Who are you talking about? Who am I talking about? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who I'm talking about. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> you tell about, me who I'm talking uh... about. <laughs> Initially, I didn't know, to be honest with you. <laughs> like, oh, hope she doesn't listen to this one. Um, um, about about six months into uh, into my recovery, I guess the 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 major practice I think that a lot of us do on Instagram is just type in hashtag sober, and just it makes an opportunity to find the people that you know are uh, undergoing the same sort of uh, issues, etc. And I did that, and it was in March, and I found this really just gut-wrenching post by um her name at the her handle at the time was um dear mr budweiser yes and uh her account was basically a journal uh that she had made anonymously to her husband that who has been who had been drinking uh substantially was an alcoholic so um it this post was about her sitting it was it was a digital clock was the picture at 4 33 in the morning and the journal entry just basically said, Dear Mr. Budweiser, uh, to paraphrase, where are you tonight? But in in several very articulate, um, beautiful, eloquent um, paragraphs. And I was immediately hit by her um, writing. And uh, obviously it resonated with me because it was the other side of my story. It was the, the wife that had been wondering, you know, where, where was I? And... Um, but with her husband. So I um, I reached out because I felt, you know what, I might have an opportunity to help these folks. And um, I just said, listen, you're you're the other half of my story. I am so happy to help you if you ever need anything. Mm-hmm. If your husband ever needs anything, um, 
just reach out. And so I DM'd her and then uh, she DM'd me back uh, shortly thereafter. And uh, we started to talk and communicate back and forth about her her life, my life, et cetera. And uh, in, the, in that time frame, we became friends. And um, it, uh, it didn't take long after that for her to um, realize that her husband was not going to uh, decide her over, her over the, the beer alcohol and uh, they ended up getting divorced. So over that was a span of a few years, few years, four years maybe, mm -hmm. that we maintained this friendship, and um, and like I said, in, initially it was com completely anonymous. I didn't have any idea what she looked like, etc. And we maintained a very sort of cordial relationship. And um, after she got divorced, uh, we decided that we would like to meet each other. So we did this very low key date and went to Niagara Falls. And uh, I picked her up at the Detroit airport and we drove to Niagara Falls and uh, we just immediately got along so well, so far beyond uh, what we'd ever imagined. And um, we got married a couple months ago. So um, we were able to maintain this love story online a little bit and it, it sort of meanders through um, my Instagram and it's uh, it's been uh, um, absolutely incredible. She's been the best gift I've ever had. So. It, yeah, I mean... I, you know, about the same time I found you on Instagram, I, I believe I found the, the Budweiser account as well. Um, I don't know if, you know, it was just through a search or, or how it happened. But again, I was following that story. I was following you. I had no idea that there was any convergence. Um, I think the when I found out the two stories converged was... Believe she reached out to me to write a letter or something. Um, I, th I think I wrote a actual physical yes. letter. Yes. Yeah. So, so that's probably when I knew something, and I and it still was just kind of, it was kind of presented to me in like, hey, I have a good friend, <laughs> you might know him, mm -hmm. you know, and um, so that's and then obviously I started to see uh, some posts and I saw the post about the dates and I've kind of been following along and. You know, I think it's it's awesome that both of you have found happiness, um, you know, on this side of, of recovery, um, you know, and, and the fact that you now have this blended family and, um, you know, it looks, again, it looks from the outside that you guys are 100% at peace. Um, you've relocated. Is that is that true? <laughs> That is true. Yes, I am currently residing in Dallas, Texas. Okay. So I I made the move from Canada to the hottest place on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> How's that going for you? How is the um, it's, the transition? It's uh it's been phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, the the actual locale is very similar to where I'm from apart from the heat. So I'm used to this sort of like suburban area uh, that I'm in here. Um the family is I mean, lots of hiccups every day, obviously. Suddenly, dad's in the house. Like, there's, you know, I have two two kids, two stepchildren now, mm -hmm. um, five and seven years old. So um, my son has is back in Canada still. He decided that he wanted to stay with his mom. Um, understandably so. He's a very social fellow. And um, we had come to terms with the fact that it would be um, okay for me to move because we have such a strong relationship. So um, we still communicate through FaceTime quite frequently and um, he visits often. So he's set to come see me in a couple weeks. Um, but yeah, we settled here because um, uh, Stephanie has a, she's a very prolific wedding photographer here. So her business is fantastic. And um, 
it's been it's been interesting moving to the U.S. Um, not not as not as different as I expected, but um, it's been it's been great thus far. Good. But yeah, we're, we're it's 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 been work. It's a lot of work getting this family to sort of like be cohesive. But uh, it's rewarding, and we're working on it every day, and it feels good most yeah. days. So, <laughs> and your son's in high school now, so yes. he's probably a little bit more prepared for something like this. I, yes, you know, I think um, you know, looking back as as a child of divorce, I think I probably would have been better prepared if it all just happened then. Right. For me, mm-hmm. like personally, that's I think I would have been in a better mind state. I don't know. Maybe not. But I know because mm-hmm. my parents lived close enough where I could do the ever every other weekend thing, but also mm-hmm. far enough away that it was like we had a midpoint drop off, you know, and, gotcha. and it was a little bit challenging for me as a kid. Um, but there was other challenges there. Right. Like both my parents had sort of addiction problems and it was a whole nightmare. But anyway, um, I think, you know, he's probably mentally at a better point. So I, I 100% love that you guys talk on FaceTime and, you know, I can see, uh, again, from afar that, that bond there. Um, well, that's, that's another thing to mention. I mean, the, the, the co-parenting element, obviously that initial hatred that I had for ex at my ex-wife yeah. was unfounded. It, it, there was no, you know, basis in that. It was obviously just me looking at it through my lens and, and having met Stephanie, like she was able to sort of, uh, introduce my ex-wife's, uh, uh, mindset and what she saw and you know it was very helpful and it's interesting because my my ex-wife has been very supportive about me moving to canada right. yeah of course yeah go away man yeah <laughs> but, yeah 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 no she, she's been she's been very supportive of it and um it's actually my my stephanie and my ex-wife have actually they they text each other now and um it's uh it's really it's it's come farther my relationship with my ex-wife has come farther than i ever imagined we are better friends than we ever were and it's uh it's incredible it's amazing and i mean i give a lot of credit to her for sure because um during the initial parts of my recovery i was very angry and very egotistical and um and obviously did exactly the opposite of what i think she expected me to do and that's get sober and and you know tell the whole world but she's been um She's been very supportive. Yeah. I also know early in your recovery, you you kind of found ways to support yourself through fitness. And, you know, you definitely do a lot of things for yourself in your recovery. Um, you know, what are some of those tools that you use, uh, you know, long term on a daily basis? Like, you know, I see you do things that I would never do. Um, but, but you're out there doing, you know, you're going on adventures and all sorts of stuff. So give me a little insight into that. Was that you beforehand or, and you pulled it out or is this all new? I'm so as an individual riddled with anxiety. Like I couldn't cross the street with a hot drink in my hand before I got sober, like just, you know, scared shitless of everything. But, um, the way I sort of looked at it is that, that, that evening that, uh, the shit hit the fan for me. It was like a starting point. It was like, I very nearly killed myself. So if I die in the woods by myself camping because a bear's eaten me, I've, that's a better story. You know? So I just quite truly, I, I looked at like, I have given myself an opportunity to die in a better manner now, which is just, it sounds stupid, but, um, that was sort of um, what got me moving in terms of the the camping and hiking and adventuring on my own. Um, but I mean, from from an actual standpoint of 
uh, recovery. And I think the most valuable tool that I assessed, accessed rather was my ability to journal. Okay. And I, I, I necessarily, I don't think anybody has to, you know, tell the world their story, but telling yourself your story is definitely one of the biggest things you can do for yourself. And the reason it helped me is it actually allowed me to formulate how I was feeling. You don't have to be the best writer in the world, just point form even. This is how I feel today, and this is why I feel this way today. And it allows you to sort things out. And I mean, from, from the standpoint of getting sober is a lot of it is just being a broken person. And if you don't, if you don't know how to feel and don't know what you're feeling, you can't fix yourself. Mm -hmm. So I think just having that tool of being able to look at, this is how I feel today. This is why I feel it. And this is what I'm going to do to not feel this way tomorrow. And what that's what that did for me ultimately is like it gave me a plan but it also gave me a reference point some of the even to this day eight years sober some of the biggest value i get is going back and look myself at two years and reading something that i've written and thinking wow you were still very much an asshole back then peter but it's but that's the that's it like this is this is an opportunity for you to look at who you were who you are and who you want to be and i think it's just like I said, the most valuable thing you can do is write down how you're feeling. Um, and then, I mean, I, I started running as well almost immediately too. And the, the, the primary reason I started running is because my ex-wife was a runner. And I hated that she did it. I hated running. I hate running. But I did it because I just wanted to do something better than her. Okay. And, and that was it. And for a while I did. And then I quit smoking and then started eating, you know, peanut butter straight from the jar. So I've put on some weight since then, but uh, I'm still active. And um, like a lot of a lot of uh, my adventures that you're speaking to, I, I, I'm a big camper. I like going camping and uh, I've done a lot of camping by myself. So, yeah, I mean, but, I, see, I see you out in the wilderness by yourself and I'm like, wow. I, I mean, I love the idea of it, but I would I would actually be nervous. I don't know if I could sleep out there by myself like that would be the hardest part for me it's just the sleeping part um, well you that I, from from that point i was um deathly afraid of sleeping outside when i was drinking and the only the way that i could do it was by polishing off a bottle of captain morgan's <laughs> so so when you're first getting sober as I, I think anyone can attest to is it's just this giant fear of wondering what you can do or what you're going to be able to do henceforth without your best friend alcohol yeah. so for me it was just an exercise and um like i said this is my new life this is an opportunity to give up my old shit, and here we go so that's where i'm at yeah. I think I think it's interesting because I was talking to my wife about this the other day in regard to just change. And I feel like people who have found recovery and have been able to maintain it for a while are pretty good at change, right? We can introduce new habits. Um, we're probably a little bit more open to it. Um, we're open to suggestion, at least I am. Although she reminded me that for a good 15 years, I was probably the one person in the house that was open to no suggestion of, of not drinking. Right. But now I feel very, uh, capable of, of, you know, Hey, I'll try biking or I'll try, you know, knitting or yeah, I would love to try that hobby. Right. And I, I think it is one of the benefits of recovery for me is my willingness to try things. Um, and then be able to stick to them a little bit longer than in the past when I was drinking, I would try hobbies, give them up quick. Um, you know, you just said you stopped running a little bit, but I'm sure you could pick it up again now. Um, 
because you've done it and you know that you can Mm -hmm. do hard things. I just, you know, when you're drinking, sometimes it's hard to imagine doing anything other than drinking. And, you know, for you, you've, you've done a lot of changing. Um, Do you continue to see this as like an evolution of yourself in recovery? I had a friend the other day ask me, are you ever recovered or are you like in a perpetual state? And I said, I think I'm in a perpetual state of, of bettering myself. Is that how you feel? I do. Uh, you know, I was just having this uh, very sim- same conversation with Stephanie. It's, it's, I was very much defined by my recovery for a long period of time because it was incredibly relevant in every day. My, my active thoughts were, were directed towards, how am I not going to drink today? Mm-hmm. What can I do today to make me not drink, right? And obviously with time, habit forms, and it, it's, not, it's not so much work any longer. So my, my mindset has changed from what am I not going, what am I going to do today to not drink to what am I grateful for today? Mm-hmm. Like what can I remember today that, um, that trumps all the alcohol in my life? What, what do I have in this room, in, like, in my heart at this moment that makes me, makes me grateful for not drinking any longer? So it's not, it's not so much active. It's more of a passive recovery I'm in now. I don't have those feelings when I'm, I mean, eh, they hit me every now and then. I, don't lie. You know, we just we went last weekend. We went to the Oktoberfest here in Addison near Dallas. And um, I was a lot of drink, beer drinking going on. And, um, you know, at the same at the same respect, you know, it's like, oh, man, sometimes you just wish you could have a beer, you know, partake and smells good, that type of thing. But then in the same scenario, I looked around and saw the quality of the social interactions deteriorate around me and the quality of, you know, individuals deteriorate around me. And it's not necessarily that everyone's an alcoholic, you know, but you can see traits in other people and it's definite reminder of why you don't do it. But it's not like I'm craving a drink on a Tuesday morning, like I used to, you know, and that's, uh, so like I said, it's more of a passive recovery. Um, my life exists as an alcoholic. It will continue to until the day I die. And I will preach the story to anyone that wants to hear it because it's only through people um, that have told me their story that I felt that I am um, able able and capable of doing it myself. So That's interesting. Passive. I, I guess that's a good description of where I am too, like this passive recovery. I've never thought about it in those terms where, you know, early on it is very active and there's a lot of focus around it. And for for me, the passive recovery has been more, how can I be just better in my life, right? Like I've tried to up my fitness again recently and I'm trying to maybe be less, uh, less angry, more grateful, right? Like you talked about gratitude. I'm really bad at gratitude. Um, it's actually like on my daily journal checklist and I hardly ever check it off, um, which is kind of appalling to think about. Um, but it is something that I have to work on. And I think recovery's opened up that space for me to, to work on those things, to be a better overall person. Again, some of them are grounded in like the, the 12 steps. Some of them are just grounded in good ideas, health, you know, mental health. I still go to therapy. Um, you know, so that's interesting that you say active and passive. I never really thought about it that way. It's, it's pretty good. 
It's pretty good terminology. Well, yeah, I think it's just, it's just, it's like I said, it's just through habit, things become easier. Yeah. You know, addiction is not never an easy nut to crack, but, but is it's relevant, but it doesn't bear the same relevance. Like I woke up in the morning and was like, what can I do today to help the world? You know, stop drinking, <laughs> which is, I mean, a great attitude to have. And then there's still a lot of that inside of me, but at the end of the day, I just remember being in that pink cloud phase thinking, my God, this is the most beautiful life that anyone's ever lived. Like, everything's so green and beautiful. And, you know, it was just like, but then, you know, the thought was in my head. It was like, are things going to go back to normal? Like, am I going to, is the alarm going to go off and I'm going to like curse at it? Mm -hmm. And and they do. They do go back to normal. I don't curse at the alarm every day like I used to, obviously, because I'm not hung over every day. But, you know, there are some days that I just want to stay in bed. And there's some days that I just want to watch Netflix and eat 17 bags of popcorn. And yeah. those days still happen. And um, that's okay. So I don't feel as though that is my job to change the world any longer. But I do feel that it is my responsibility to maintain my recovery, help others. But I don't have to be, you know, on the, on the soapbox every day any longer. Yeah, I love that. Um, so now that you're in Texas and you're you know, new life, obviously things are shifting. What's the plan for you um, in the near future? Like, what are you, what are you working on? What are you working towards? Um, how has life shifted for you, like on a professional front? Um, at this very moment, the plan is uh, that I'm a stay-at-home dad. Um, so, I mean, uh, there is, there's a lot of work in that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So um, I spent the summer with the kids. I got here. I had the fortuitous opportunity to get here just as uh, the school was letting out. So I was able to have the whole summer with the two kids. And uh, we had a lot of fun. We learned a lot about each other. And um, and I mean, I'm at 3.30. It's my job to go pick the kids up at school. It's my privilege mm -hmm. to go pick the kids up at school and make dinner. My, my wife often works late. So um, I'm, I'm a single parent a lot of the time. And... Uh, thus far, it's been very fulfilling. Nice. I mean, I can't figure out what are the, any of them like to eat, obviously. If there's like a nanometer of um, too much mustard on a sandwich, I'm screwed. So still working on that. But um, but no, it's been very fulfilling. So I mean, the goal at this point is to perhaps get the podcast up and running again okay. or uh, and finish the book because I've got a volume, volumes and volumes, and I just need to edit them and get them down because um, I've I've... I've had requests day after day still uh, to put something out there. So uh, continually working on that. Um, while I've been off, I've decided um, while I'm here in Texas, it's a very good idea that I learn Spanish. So I'm doing that as well. And um, that's it. Yeah. Just trying to stay busy. Yeah, I mean, you're a creative person, right? Uh, your writing is, well, I think it's brilliant. You know, you have a way of expressing yourself that not many people do. I think if you were to put out a book that was, you know, just catered on recovery, it would do very well. Um, but I think you could write just about anything, right? You have a very uh, Sedaris-like quality to you. And, but I can also see that you're creative, right? You're now you're, you're posting more video driven content, which I think is very uh, visually interesting as well. So Thanks. you obviously- Pure therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Pure <laughs> listen you have a creative like vibe in you 
And I think it's, if you can harness that, and obviously now there's photography floating around in your house and it just, it could be the right environment to, to change, yeah. you know, and, and go a different way. And I think that's the other thing that happens to people who find long-term recovery is like maybe what I was doing before professionally wasn't working. I mean, I feel that way a lot, um, to be honest, but I, I also don't feel like I can make that change now. I, I do love what I do professionally, but I also know that I would probably rather be teaching or, or something in that ballpark. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, I think that recovery can afford people the opportunity to, to shift. And listen, if people are beating down your door for a book, it's not that bad. <laughs> you no, know, I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great I, spot to be. I can move, if I can move to Texas, you can be a teacher. Yeah. Maybe down the road. I actually apply to be <laughs> like an adjunct. A lot of guys I work with, uh, do like adjunct professor stuff. And, um, I had applied right before the pandemic, which was just bad timing. Um, because obviously colleges kind of change their model. So, um, maybe, maybe, uh, in a year or two from now, our one son just started college. So we're, we're kind of getting used to a new, a new, uh, routine around this house. Um, having a college. Kid. Corey, Corey, I want to see this on your daily checklist. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I have my daily checklist. It's uh, it is. I'm gonna get on my. I'm gonna get, on, I'm gonna get on my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of creative, um, one of my other things that I like to talk about on the podcast is you know what people take in uh, media wise. I'm a big sort of TV, music, podcast, any movies, books. Uh, I just love taking it all in, and I always ask people what are they into right now so i'd be very interested to know what you sort of ingest <laughs> in that way okay um from the standpoint of television media right now i can't get enough of anything that's about polygamy i don't know <laughs> what it is <laughs> but plural lifestyle not that i have any plan of living it is fascinates me so if you can give me this there's obviously a show called sister wives um seeking sister wife which is just absurd it's just it's i mean i mean if you live that lifestyle yeah. that's fine and i accept you obviously but um just very entertaining i mean that's my that's my my guilty pleasure media at the moment okay um i did actually pull some books out here just to, to talk about some some that have been sort of impactful for me over the years mm -hmm. um the one that i'm currently reading in the recovery vein is uh laura mccowis second book um push off from here um, we had the opportunity to meet, uh, Laura, uh, at a book signing in Austin a few years ago, and we've become friends over the years and she's been very supportive of Stephanie and I, and her writing is absolutely phenomenal and uh, it been very impactful for me. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. Um, some of my favorite books from recovery, um, I've got one here called Blackout by Sarah Huppala. Yeah. Um, just, this is just a gritty, raw account of her uh, rock bottom story, and it is, um, it is one of those books that I read and felt very fortunate for my story. Um, she, she had a rough go of things, and it is uh, a fa fantastic to see her come out on the other end. And that's what that story. So, the things I drank to forget, blackout by Sarah Huppala, and then my last book in recovery is. Um, 
by Rob Delaney. So I don't know if anyone's, you know, a lot of people are familiar with him, but he was actually the first guy, first comedian on Twitter to get to, uh, I mean, Twitter X, formerly known as Twitter, um, to get a million followers. And his book is called Mother, Wife, Sister, Human, Warrior, Falcon, Yardstick, Turban, Cabbage. <laughs> and it is, um, uh, it's a comedy uh, uh, autobiography, but it actually digs into his his recovery story as well. And it's just, if you want some light reading that is still very gut-wrenching at times, that's Rob Delaney's book. Right. And what I'm reading right now in the non-recovery vein is uh, User's Guide to Democracy, How America Works. Okay. And that's by uh, Nick Covetus and Hannah McCarthy. And that is because I'm new here in the United States. Um, I've always had a very a pretty big interest in uh, U.S. politics. So I've uh, I decided to take it to a next level and learn about what the hell the Electoral College is. So, um, so that's that. And then I guess from a music standpoint, uh, my favorite album of the past 10 years is by Ray LaMontagne. It's called Araboros. And it is dark, brooding, moody, and depressing. And it was the album that I found um, a few months after um, my rock bottom, and it carried me through. It's angry, it's soft, it's sad. Um, his wife um, was diagnosed with a terminal Ill illness during this time uh, span, and uh, it is a kind of akin to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. It is phenomenal. A lot of people don't think of him as a, a very sort of deep and depthy artist, but uh, it's 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 the best album I've heard in a long time. He is really good. Um, Renee and I have gotten to see him live once. Um, he, nice. was, he was an opener for somebody we saw. Um, and just a side note, his estate in Massachusetts just went up for sale. So if anybody has... Oh, like, really? Yeah, I think it's like five million dollar estate which kind of okay was like, let me go grab my checkbook yeah it really kind of shocked me i didn't realize like <laughs> ray was was living in that kind of lifestyle yeah. you know um but it's very nice house you think he'd buy some new pants my yeah, god yeah like he didn't strike me as the five million dollar estate guy but um yeah. you know then i started to kind of I, re I revisited a lot of his stuff and he has such a, a big catalog of music it's uh yeah. You know, he's put a lot out over the years. So great, great recommendation there. And I think it's very admirable that you are digging into our democracy because so many people that live here don't care about it at all. So the fact that you want to learn more is is uh, pretty awesome. Um, it's, we're in a sad state of affairs at the moment, uh, but hopefully we, we can... There's hope. Yeah, I think there's, there's hope. hope. There's hope. There's always hope. Um, that's that's having having lived in Canada. Obviously, we have a, a reputation for being uh, nice individuals, very apologetic, and uh, but uh, just just being here and experiencing Southern culture. I mean, beautiful, beautiful people here. Yeah. Just kind, and the worldview is that you know the states is just people fighting at Kroger right. in the line about, you know, their political beliefs. But I have found that when you're out here and just doing the thing, it's, it's, it's not, it's not the way it's depicted around the world. That's for certain. But well, I mean, there are pockets of it. Don't get me wrong, but um, living in Texas, which is a deeply red state, I anticipated that there would be uh, a lot more, uh, a lot more overt sort of opinion, opinion. And I, I haven't found that to be so. And I, yeah. And I think part of that just to, 
I mean, this is my opinion, and people can say I'm crazy, but I think that what we portray to the world is our small pockets and cities, right? So you see these mm-hmm. like very polarized cities, but when you go out into the suburbs and into the rural areas, people have to coexist and help each other out, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I help my neighbor when his tree falls down. He might not have the same political views as me, but we we have a common goal here, right? Our street has to be maintained properly, and we have to sort of live in harmony and. I, I think what we portray out to the the world is this like uh, hyper polarizing viewpoint of the cities and and yeah they are hard to be in right now um, you know I go to New York City for work it is not the most pleasant place to be um, I know Portland and you know San Francisco and all mm-hmm. these places are but they're like people are not. I don't know. I, I think the city thing is like you're on top of each other. You're not really working together. It's very individualistic. But go out to a hard place to live. Like go out to rural Maine and survive a winter. You don't care what your neighbor thinks about politically. You care if they can get your driveway plowed, right? Like For sure. it, it's just yeah. a different viewpoint. And, and that's most of America. And I think that we just need to kind of turn down the echo chamber media and turn down the social media and and remember where we came from and we can do amazing things um once we just kind of focus on our street and then maybe focus on your 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 town and then your county you know like i think that that's where this all starts to change um Mm -hmm. not at the national level that's my that's how i feel you Mm -hmm. know i'm a big advocate of like take care of your street and then things will start to happen but um we'll see how that goes and I, and I love all your TV shows, Sister Wives. Or that's one that we'll put on when we're falling asleep. I love Cody. I think he's a real trip. <laughs> you, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he's, he's definitely in his, his mindset. He's, he loves himself. But yeah, he's yeah. managed to like turn off what, like four of, I forget how many. They're dropping like flies. Yeah, they just keep dropping away from him. And he's like, he just yeah. plants that flag like, I'm correct. <laughs> Yeah. There's something to be said for that guy. Well, uh, yeah, we can ident- we can identify with that. I think. In yeah, a, yeah, right. It's in like, a way, yeah. yeah. He managed to run off all of them in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> <laughs> Nuts. Um, uh, so, um, and then Laura. I mean, I you know, again, I started out listening to the home podcast. I listened to those two sort of kind of live their their podcast life and now they're both on their own uh laura and holly um laura lives in in an area where uh, my older son was born up in on the north shore of massachusetts so i kind of always kind of felt some sort of connection to her through where she was living at the time when i first found her um but i think that they've done a ton for the recovery world and you know it's interesting that you had two female writers and then rob I do feel like the space now is finding a big, like the recovery space used to be very male dominated, 12 step, you know, it was like, you know, you know, the patriarchy and all that, that, you know, male driven recovery where females were a little bit to the back. And I think it's well, yeah, flipping. in the big book is, wasn't there a chapter the to the wife of the alcoholic? Yeah. 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 And I think that there's a, a big shift now and, um, you know, I think it's becoming more inclusive and it can only better the space, right, for everybody to to understand that it affects, you know, 
not only just white dudes, but it affects, you know, everybody. And um, the fact that two of your, your books were Sarah and Laura are, are really a testament to that. Uh, well, yeah, speaking speaking of Laura, I mean, if I could, you know, just uh, say something about her. Um, if you if you are looking for an alternate recovery space, her TL or TLC, the luckiest community yeah. TLC, um, it's you can search it on Instagram, but um, it is a, a paid subscription based recovery community. And I've had the opportunity to speak for them on a few occasions. And I joined for a stint. And uh, it's a really sort of holistic place to meet uh, in a Zoom style format um, that sort of does not um, does not uh, function with the same sort of dogma that AA, AA can. But it's a really useful and uh, great community for some as well. And you know, something that if you're looking for an alternative alternative space, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, I'll I'll definitely link that in the show notes. Yeah, um, I have not partaken in any of that. But I uh, I do see it on online, and I know there's a lot of folks uh, that we both know in common that have kind of flowed through that that program mm-hmm. and are in, in in part of it. Um, this week for me, media wise, it's hard to do this week in and week out. I am going to go with uh, the EP that was put out by Zach Bryan. Um, he obviously is like the big country singer of the moment. And I'm not like the biggest country music guy, but I like Zach's style. And my younger son sings his one song at karaoke every time we go. So he's kind of fallen into the rotation, but his new EP is great. He has, I think it's five songs. Each one of them are pretty, pretty darn perfect. And um, he has Bon Iver on one and Noah Khan on another. Oh. And I think it's just a solid five song EP. And I just love that, you know, we live in this age of digital music where people can drop a five song EP and then maybe a single the next week and just kind of keep music flowing. So uh, for me, it was the Bon Iver uh, song that just is, um, it's called Boys of Faith. It's a, it's a very solid song. Um, from a TV standpoint, I don't know. I mean, I'm in the middle of watching Suits on Netflix, and it's silly and ridiculous and about, you know, these rich lawyers and hedge fund guys and everything that I'm not totally about, but I, lo- <laughs> I love I love the show. I don't know why. Um, and so that's my, my TV recommendation for the week. I know books, but I will give shout-out to a podcast that just started up um, – This is a Canadian broadcasting podcast, and they put out some of the most um, riveting audio that I've heard. Um, And I I think it's really just David Ridgen is the the host and producer. Um, But he puts out a lot of podcasts about uh, indigenous crime in Canada and people who have gone missing and, um, you know, they're forgotten stories and he brings a lot of light to them and he does it in a very you know touching way and uh, the audio is just so compelling um so it's the new season of someone knows something he has a couple others uh, i think it's the last call is the other one that he has um so if anybody has time to research the cbc podcasts they put out some great content i know uh pete you probably are familiar with the cbc <laughs> Yes, I am the Canadian Broadcasting Company. Yes, yeah. 
I don't. We know. all owe, we all own shares in it. Yeah, I pay for it. I used to pay for it every time that I uh, paid my income tax. So yeah. Oh yeah, I mean entirely publicly funded. Yep. I got I got my taste when I was up there this summer in Vancouver and Montreal. So. Oh, uh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, but David Ridgen is he really is he puts together some great podcasts. So if you like crime podcasts and um you know it's not everybody's cup of tea but i do enjoy a good crime podcast still so um that's all i got is he a monogamist i no, i don't uh yeah i think <laughs> i hope i don't know i because i probably need to get off the plural wives yeah, thing yeah. He probably so. is i don't I, you know it's interesting i don't know much about david um but i've listened to i want to say 12 seasons of his podcast and he just oh wow check it out yeah he has such a a great production quality about it. Um, it's he's sort of doing the interviews live and in the field, and um, you know he travels quite a bit for it. And the cases are all very, you know, interesting cases of people who had gone missing maybe fifteen years ago. Um, and and in a lot of the times, they're in these very rural parts of Canada where, you know, it just is kind of not even looked at. Right? These are people that nobody quote nobody cares about right and and i think that mm -hmm. every you know canada has that and the states have that right like some people just go missing and and nobody cares where they went and it to me that is about as sad as it gets um that somebody mm -hmm. can just disappear and literally nobody cares um so i it's kind of a it kind of depresses me but i can't not listen to them i think it's important to know that those stories exist Certainly. Yeah. So, um, but that's what I got for the week. And, you know, Pete, I have wanted to talk to you like this for a while. So I'm glad we got a chance to do this. Um, you know, me too. Thanks a lot for asking me. It's been great to be here. Yeah. And if you ever kick your podcast up, I will step on. If you are guest hosting or whatever you plan to do with it, I am sure it'll be entertaining. Um, so thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Yeah. And if everybody, I can... just want to, I just want to ask you one more thing. Sure. You, were, you were talking earlier about, uh, karaoke. Yes. That's sober karaoke. Yeah. I don't do it. My son does it. <laughs> oh, you don't do it. Okay. I, say, I would gladly be mauled by a bear over sober karaoke. <laughs> I've done karaoke, uh, when I was drinking. Um, he wants me to go up and sing with them and I, I probably will. We just haven't gone, uh, since baseball started in the fall, we have less, we've had less time, but he is, uh, my younger son is quite the showman. He dresses up in full, uh, cowboy regalia. He's got the boots and the hat and, uh, you know, in, inside his hat, he has a picture of his brother. Like he's going to go out on the, <laughs> on the planes and, you know, be out there for like two months. Um, That's great. I don't know how, I don't know. <laughs> we have two sons. My, my older son is like as straight as they come, you know, like just like militaristic, you know, I got to get this done. And then we have the 11 year old who's, you know, dresses up as a cowboy to sing karaoke <laughs> and, you know, baseball player with chains hanging off of them. And it's just, it's so strange Balance. to me how we produce yep. two kids completely opposite of each other. Um, but that's how it goes, right? But I will you let it. you know when I sing karaoke for real. Um, Excellent. So Can't wait. Put it on your list. I will. It's on my list. <laughs> <Atta> boy. <laughs> and then once I do it, you have to do it though, right? Like that's the... <laughs> yeah, sure. Whatever. I'll do it. All I'll right. do anything once. All right. Well, thanks again, Pete. And I appreciate my pleasure. Uh, the time. I know it's hard to carve out uh, an hour uh, for all of us. So, um, 
but we will be in touch and I will see you all next week. Sounds good, sir. See you soon.